Welcome everybody back to the Pacific Century, the Hoover Institution's podcast on China, America, and the 21st century. Uh, we're back here with my co-host, Misha Oslin, and a veritable slew, a slew of celebrity guests, co-hosts. It's a, it's a merry-go-round here. Misha, tell us who we've got with us today. Well, Johnny, I mean, John, well, great to be back. If we were in the Pacific Northwest, I guess we could call this a Seattle slew. But in, in this case, it's just a slew. And we, we had to do this because uh, any of our, our listeners who, who uh, listened in last week when we had Tom Tugendhat uh, heard a throwdown to the U.S. Marines. And uh, we, we, we felt that there was only one way to respond to Tom's slur of our great U.S. Marine Corps, and that's to invite on the show two U.S. Marines to talk with two civvies. And so we have, first, as our special guest co-host today, someone who's not a stranger to this show, Representative Mike Gallagher from Green Bay, Wisconsin, who uh, has been uh, not only uh, one of the leading voices on China in Congress, but has been one of the, the great intellectual interlocutors with those of us working on policy issues uh, from the outside of government and helping us understand what they're doing up on Capitol Hill. And as a former Marine, he is going to be interrogating, I think his old job, interrogating our guest, which is our colleague at the Hoover Institution, our new colleague, Matt Pottinger. Matt, of course, who most recently served as Deputy National Security Advisor in the Trump administration, also uh, served all four years in the National Security Council, uh, starting off as the Senior Director for Asia and then fleeting upwards, uh, but has made the leap into the world of the mind. And we are thrilled to have him with us. So both Mike and Matt, welcome to the Pacific Century and Semper Fi. Hoorah. It's an honor to be back. Hoorah. Thanks for having us. We're, we're, Please get the we have... Dugan hat stuff out of the way. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Right. Please do it. <laughs> well, what was the throwdown? So, what was the intelligence of the Marine Corps? Yeah. Uh, quite viciously. But, I mean, what kind of name? But you didn't, say, you didn't say not, not accurately. Listen, Marines, I would say, are 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 mostly known for their not for their 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 literary skills, but for their brute strength. I mean, obviously, one look at both Matt and me would confirm that. I mean, we're just <laughs> hulking monsters of men. So there is some truth in what Tom said. But uh, it's just I mean, an unnecessary attack on, on, on close allies, I might add. Well, just to remind folks, we I, I did mention that we were we were hoping to have Matt and. Uh, and Mike on and and Tom said that they were dear friends and if they had ever learned to read they would have been in the army and that was it and then then it just became a fate accompli to have them on uh, yeah the special relationship is under a little bit of strain right now but uh, we're 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 going to set it all right uh, it, and let me, let me well, is it the case that the last time our Marines would have fought the British Army would have been the War of eighteen twelve or was there a more recent ass kicking. That's a good question. Well, we had <laughs> well, Marines we, we, in the Revolutionary War, so we kicked their ass in that endeavor. <laughs> Take that, Tom Tugendhat. What kind of name is Tom Tugendhat? It sounds like a caricature of some foppet, like British dandy name. I mean, the idea that this guy's a lieutenant colonel strains credulity. I have never seen him in uniform, so I'm going to need some proof on that. Yeah. I well, think he's I, from I, the I Pirates say, of Penzance or something. Yeah. I'll say that the uh, the, the British Army's uh, poetry curriculum 
uh, didn't help Tom's uh, ancestors at the Battle of Yorktown. But, but it is true that, that, that uh, you know, Brit British Army officers do have something in common with Royal Marines, which is that uh, all, all of them originally intended to be Royal Marines. Uh, <laughs> Oh, this is I, I, you know, I knew we should have invited Tom on, but that would have been the whole show right now. That, that's just, it's, it's brilliant. We, wh why don't we, wh let's leave Tom for now. Cause I think he's actually on the, on the, the, the ropes right now or on the mat getting the countdown um, and maybe shift to China. Let's, let's do that. Let's give Tom a breather and we'll, uh, we'll come back at the end of the show, of course, for a few more licks before we uh, sign off. Uh, but Matt, we wanted to um, we, we wanted to actually to, to open up with with uh, your recent uh, Wall Street Journal piece, uh, which was is a great piece. It's making the rounds. It was actually sent to me by uh, some different uh, um, you know reading groups that I'm a member of, uh, and uh, basically you you have a simple argument, which is that Western business, and particularly in our case, American business, has to choose has to choose between doing business with China or upholding. American values. And what I wanted to ask you about that is, you know, I don't need to explain it a little bit more, uh, but actually what you, what we all hear and we've heard for years is the very counter, or the very opposite of that, which is that no one wants to be forced to choose, right? We always hear that ASEAN doesn't want to be forced to choose and Europe doesn't want to be forced to choose and American business doesn't want to be forced to choose. No one wants to be forced to choose between Beijing and the United States. And you're saying that's not true. That's a fantasy. What, what is your argument about that? And how is it playing out in terms of what we're seeing with H&M and we're seeing with other companies today? Yeah, it, so it, I, I guess that it's that, uh, that Beijing is now forcing uh, companies to choose. It, it, it's, it's not really anyone else but Beijing that's forced them to choose. There, there was this, this thought among uh, you know, business leaders in the West that, that you know, as long as they tread lightly inside of China's borders, uh, and, and don't make a big deal of human rights uh, that, that, you know, th they'll still be able to sell, uh, you know, tennis shoes and, and, uh, and jet engines and what, what, what have you. Uh, but the fact is that what Beijing has done over the past few years and, and, and has really intensified in particular just in recent, recent months uh, is the, the imperative that U.S. and Western companies in general uh, bury their values, not only when they come to China, but also at home uh, as the price of doing business in China. And so we've seen that with the NBA, you know, if, if an NBA uh, coach sends something out on Twitter that upsets Beijing, even though Twitter is banned in China, um, China will suspend uh, you know, the NBA's uh, business for a year in China, or they'll, they'll demand that people get fired uh, from their, their jobs in, in uh, you know, uh, um, Oklahoma <laughs> or what have you. And so now you're seeing it with, um, uh, um, with greater intensity, and it's basically uh, put businessmen in the position of now having to straddle two boats. Uh, the, 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 the United States has made clear, uh, the Trump administration, as well as the Biden administration, that, that actually um, we, we're in a great power competition. Ideology plays a central role in that uh, competition. Our values are going to be one of our chief um, pillars of, of, uh, uh, of our strategy in that competition. And so 
uh, American businesses are like sailors straddling two boats and, and they're going to end up getting wet if they're, if they, uh, uh, if they don't actually choose a boat. And this has been going on uh, for a while. I mean, you can, I, I, called it the golden age of kowtowing a number of years ago in the Wall Street Journal, where, uh, as you were referencing, you had Marriott forced to apologize, you had Mercedes-Benz forced to apologize, um, and, and in incredibly degrading manners for, for, you know, insulting the dignity of the Chinese people, for threatening, you know, the, the sovereignty of, of China and the territorial integrity, uh, the fact that the airlines all wiped Taiwan off, off the map, you can still fly there, you just can't fly to Taiwan, you can fly to Taipei. So this is not something that is is new, um, but it but it does seem to be increasing. Um, Mike, what uh, how do you see it from the hill, and and what what would you like to ask Matt about in terms of of all of that? Well, one thing we we've tried to do on the hill, and I think the the canary in the coal mine for me was not only sort of Matt educating me on the topic, but um, prior to the MBA scandal. And prior to some of the wolf warrior diplomacy we saw during the pandemic um, and still continue to see today was what we saw happen in Australia, uh, what continues in, in Australia today. Uh, one of our closest allies being economically extorted by the Chinese. And in Congress, we certainly tried to take defensive measures by strengthening CFIUS, the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States, with the legislation called FIRMA. So, Matt, I'd be curious to get your take on whether what we did uh, was you know, a step in the right direction, what more needs to be done in terms of injecting some transparency into US capital markets or around general Chinese investments in the United States? And perhaps a second and related question to that, what about money that is flowing from the United States to, to China? I mean, you say we, we have to choose. Is there Does that mean we're going to have to scrutinize every hedge fund investment in a Chinese business, what, what Chinese businesses are acceptable? How do we use the FY99 NDA list? So how, hopefully that makes some sense. No, it's, you know, the, the outflow of American investment into China is, uh, is one of those areas that we, we began to address in the final year of the, of the Trump administration, but we, we really need to do a lot more. And, and this is because the financial sector uh, was one of the earlier sectors to be forced to choose by Beijing in a sense. What, what Beijing did is it leaned on uh, financial institutions and pressured them to weight Chinese companies more heavily in their investment indexes. And those in, investment indexes are really important because there's a lot of passive investment that, uh, I mean, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars ultimately that, that flows uh, as a result of, uh, of those, those index uh, decisions into Chinese companies. And in many cases, what you're seeing is that these indices have been tweaked so that um, you know, unsuspecting American pensioners, uh, firemen, teachers, uh, you know, uh, retired Marines, their money is flowing into China's uh, military industrial complex. Uh, unbeknownst to them, uh, because that, that money that is being managed by, uh, you know, well-known household uh, names in, in finance are, are actually stuffing a lot of that money into Chinese companies that are building uh, military capabilities in China, companies that have been sanctioned by the Department of Commerce for, uh, you know, they've had, had their uh, you know, U.S. exports are banned from going to some of these companies, and yet we're still shoveling uh, billions of dollars of American pensioners' money into those same companies. So, so th that reckoning 
which which began to take place under the the Trump administration needs to be followed through by the Biden administration or else Congress is going to have to take it into their own hands. But it, it, it's an untenable situation um, that we would be um, uh, on, on one aspect of our government would be sanctioning Chinese companies uh, uh, that that the other part of our government is permitting um, uh, uh, you know, the flow of, of funds to those very same companies. So um, I don't know what exactly what the mechanism is. That's something that I, I want to look at closely and, and talk uh, to you and others about in, in the weeks ahead, but it might be some kind of a CFIUS body that uh, examines outbound investment to find out who the end user, you know, the, who is the recipient of, uh, of all of this, these passive flows of American investment. Um, uh, because, you know, it, it's not in our interest to be funding those companies. And were we to, um, to stop funding them, it, 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 would, uh, it, it would deprive China of a, of a very important crutch that, uh, you know, their, their system does not uh, support innovation in and of itself. A lot of the innovation and a lot of the capital that China is using uh, is actually foreign capital from the United States that, that is propping up what is otherwise a highly inefficient uh, non-innovative um, uh, system. I ask a follow-up really quick. Um, so to me, the, the resistance to the approach that you promulgated in the Trump administration and, you know, longtime listeners will know that I've, I've in the past been effusive in my praise of, of Matt Ponder. It's getting actually sickening how, how much I have to praise <laughs> Matt because I thought I was the more talented Marine officer when we met in, in 2007 and now he's eclipsed me in every way. So it's hard for me to admit, but I'll just assume your, your listeners have familiarity with that. Uh, I think you, I was struck by how effective you were in very short order in um, generating a, what I think is a new bipartisan consensus around China. And I think sending signals to the business community that some form of selective decoupling is necessary. I understand the resistance from Wall Street and Hollywood an MBA as part of just a pure profit incentive within the interagency without naming names, where, why do you think we struggle to sort of to change course? Is it just bureaucracy doing its thing? Is it bureaucracy captive to the very business outside interest they're supposed to oversee? Where did you encounter the biggest forms of resistance to this new approach within the government? Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of um, uh, built in, uh, muscle memory in in the Treasury Department and in the Commerce Department uh, that, that it's muscle memory that was formed in an earlier time at the end of the Cold War when we were triumphant and uh, and it looked like the rest of the world was going to have to converge inevitably with a more liberal order first a, a more liberal trading and investment order and then and then and then a more liberal we hoped uh, political order as well. Um, but uh, as it's turned out, we've that muscle memory has has perpetuated um, uh, the flow of money and technology uh, uh, into our in, into the coffers and and uh, industrial base of our chief adversary, and uh, we do it for short term gain. You know, we we for example. Um, you know what we want to sell jet engines to uh, China's new state champion that's building a, a competitor to the you know Airbus and Boeing. Um, uh, it, but what we'll find over time is that we've we've empowered a heavily subsidized um, uh, state champion in China who who will first box us out of their market and then use those subsidies and advantages and stolen intellectual property. 
to box us out of uh, third markets and, and then ultimately uh, make it unsustainable for us to even uh, have a market here at home. Uh, so we, we've seen this play out over and over again, industry after industry. You see the, the carcasses of, of, of household uh, name companies from the United States and, you know, and, and then whole industries, whole sectors of the economy that are now uh, corpses. Um, uh, you know, telecommunications equipment manufacturing is a pretty good example of that. If we're not careful, uh, that's going to happen with semiconductors as well. So we've we've really got to uh, we've got to remember and and sort of reinvigorate and reincentivize in our bureaucracies at Commerce and Treasury the idea that th they are national security uh, agencies as well as you know economic and financial agencies. So, uh, Matt, I think. Um... I may have met you 20 years ago when you were a young writer at the Wall Street Journal slaving away for Paul Gigot, which uh, to me must be harder than being in the U.S. Marine Corps, actually. But <laughs> I, I, I want to know more about how did you come to make China the focus of your career and your life? I, I'm very curious about, you know, you're, I agree with Mike, you're one of the top guys in America who's on top of this you know, this major threat to the country, you were, you saw it before a lot of other people saw it and you've been working tirelessly to bring the country around and see it. How did this happen? You know, how did you, how did you come to see this as the major issue? How did you gain the skills to do this? And, uh, you know, how, when, how, when how I was in high school, became Matt Pottinger <laughs> since I, high school, I, I, but <laughs> I, 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 I butted heads with uh, a Spanish teacher when I was in high school, and, 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 and I'm sure it was, it was mostly my fault. I, w I wasn't doing great in Spanish, so I, so I did what anyone who's not doing really well in their Spanish class would do, which is to jump to Mandarin. Uh, and the, I, I was, was added, languages, I, as we all know. <laughs> yeah, there was so, you know, I, I thought it, it, you know, it, it clearly had a Latin base. And, and was, <laughs> what, romance, was just the romance, romance languages. Language. I, I, I ended up jumping into uh, a, uh, the, the Mandarin uh, Chinese language class at my high school. It was one of the few high schools in the country at the time. This is before the Confucius Institutes, remember, <laughs> um, uh, that, that was teaching uh, Mandarin. And I, I ended up really falling in love with, uh, with the language and, um, and also uh, it, you know, when I was in high school, I was planning to do a, a summer exchange in Beijing. Um, and just, we, I'd gotten, I still have my old passport with the Chinese visa in it. And um, uh, just as we were prepared to leave, uh, Beijing declared martial law. And soon after that, uh, gunned down student and, and other protesters uh, in and around Tiananmen Square. So I, I was not able to go to Beijing, but I, but I, I began really following the news as a, as a high school sophomore because of the events that took place in 1989. And that, that, that's what got me reading newspapers for the first time. Uh, it got me thinking and talking to my, my, my father and, and others about uh, geopolitics and history. Can I put a plug for your dad as a uh, law professor? Your dad is actually quite a famous lawyer. People don't know this in the China world, but your father was head of the civil rights division at the Justice Department. And his name, you know, if you read these famous cases, his name is all over these Supreme Court cases from the mid 70s. People 
have no idea. Actually, I was going to ask you, what does your dad think about what you're doing? Does he agree with you that China is the major threat and that uh, we should be going after them? Or and, and does he ask, like, yeah. what can I do as a civil rights lawyer to get a China? <laughs> <laughs> no, we, we, you know, I was really lucky to, to that, uh, you know, to, to uh, have my father as, as my father, because all of those events, um, that, that also I was reading about in, in uh, my history class, my, my U.S. history class was, was history that he had lived and had played a, you know, a, a bit part in, uh, as you mentioned. So we, we, that, that's a conversation my father and I have had uh, up to the present day. You know, it, it's, it's, it's been a, a longstanding conversation about U.S. history and what's happening in this country and also about what's going on in China. Sorry about so, the, for the so. family interlude, but being Asian, <laughs> I had to ask about your parents. So, but my, my, my real question, last question, is, uh, so you're talking about how you were interested in China, but at some point it sounds like your attitude towards China changed. Like you sounded like many people, you were kind of in love with the culture, the language. And then at some point you changed your mind about China and came to see it as a threat yeah. to the country's security. When did, when did that happen and why? Yeah, you know, it, it's probably not one in instance, but but I, you know, I have to confess, first of all, that when I was a, uh, a reporter covering the the World Trade Organization talks um, between Washington and Beijing in, you know, in the late 90s. Um, and the, and the, those talks resulted in China acceding to the WTO in 2001. Yeah, I, I was among those who was, um, who was a bit um, uh, uh, you know, overly optimistic, uh, very hopeful at least that, um, that China's entry into the WTO would, would be uh, a starting gun for uh, further reforms that would lead to that that liberalization that, that we're talking about, that, that that was that was the underlying assumption that underpinned all the U.S. strategy towards China for really for decades, and uh, unfortunately we were wrong. That was not the starting gun for reform. That was the uh, that was the finishing tape. After that, Beijing's reforms stalled out and plateaued. Uh, and by the time Xi Jinping came onto the scene, um, you know, a decade after that, um, uh, things really went to reverse. And what we've seen now is is a is a shift to uh, a, really a pre Deng Xiaoping reform and opening era. We're in a very very different chapter of history that that bears more resemblance to the the pre Deng uh, Mao Zedong uh, years. So I, I I can't think of one specific instance that that started to you know, uh, changed my, uh, my, my view about the odds that China really was going to, to liberalize. But, um, but certainly I, I had, a, I had some run-ins with, um, with the security apparatus when I was, uh, doing investigative reports into corruption in China. I had a, a whistleblower from a, a uranium mine, uh, who approached me. And, uh, what, when I was inter interviewing him, I ended up getting roughed up once, uh, and, uh, but you know, of course it, it, those, those instances by themselves don't really, um, uh, kind of explain, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the dimming or, you know, the eclipsing of my optimistic view about China's future. I think it was really just accumulation of everything over time. But do you think, do you think that we, we were just naive? Did we, um, obviously we're optimistic and we were hopeful and in many ways it was worth making that type of bet, but but did we just fundamentally misunderstand the nature of the the Communist Party? That that um, you know, Deng Xiaoping was the guy who 
if not ordered, allowed the tanks to go into Tiananmen Square, and yet he's, you know, revered as this great reformer. So what was it that we got mugged by reality? Did we just not understand from the beginning or or did something go wrong? You know, it's it's there's a big argument in lots of Japanese history. Was the 1930s the inevitable result of the Meiji Restoration or did something go wrong? How do, how do you view it? Not Japan. I, I think I think in the case of China, um, the, the more that that I've spent time reading what Chinese leaders say in their own language to their own party, um, the, the more it's become clear to me that um, that it that it really was inevitable that we were going to get mugged by reality, and that it was a pipe dream uh, to think that that uh, China would continue forward with the liberalization uh, that that was unleashed under Deng Xiaoping. So I really I view Deng Xiaoping and his era as an aberration. Uh, and uh, a tactical uh, shift from a, a broader direction, a broader trajectory that has been uh, uh, made plain again under the current leadership. Uh, so yeah, we, we, were, we were a little naive. I, I mean, the United States, we, we often misjudge the nature of, uh, of competitions that we're in and, and, and the nature of our adversaries because we, we, you know, we project ourselves onto them and uh, I think that happened in a big way uh, in this case. And Matt, we've talked, you know, about the economic and by extension, the technological aspects of this competition, your own ideological journal journey. What about sort of the, the hard power military dimension of this competition? Um, and maybe as a starting off point, we had testimony before the Armed Services Committee from Admiral Davidson two weeks ago, where he said he thinks a move on Taiwan is likely within the next six years. So I guess, you know, do you share that assessment? Why does that matter to the American people? And are we currently postured in terms of our military posture to deter uh, the CCP by denial? Yeah. So, you know, deterrence requires, um, uh, requires a couple of things. One, it requires um, great capability on our part, which we have, we, we still have the greatest military in the world. Uh, and it also requires um, us to, to demonstrate that we have will. That is that we have, that we intend uh, to fight if our interests are, are, uh, um, are, are badly uh, damaged or compromised. So, you know, capability and will. And so, um, and, then, and then you have to have on the other side, an adversary that is reading those signals uh, accurately and, uh, and, and appropriately, and that those signals are being transmitted up to, to the top leader. So what, what's changing now, what's making the situation increasingly dangerous is you have a leadership in Beijing that is extremely remote uh, from, um, uh, from dissenting opinion of any kind, even within the party, even within the senior ranks of the party. Um, it, this is not a, a dictatorship that uh, you know, brooks dissent <laughs> within its own ranks in private, much less um, in a public kind of way. So I, I do think that we're, there's a danger that the top leader in China is so insulated, um, he's increasingly like the North Korean leader, quite frankly, uh, so insulated from uh, um, a, a range of, of uh, streams of information and of opinion and advice 
that that he he could make a grave miscalculation. Uh, but then there's also the longer term issue about uh, China's relative gain in capability. Um, uh, you know, their navy, uh, just the sheer number of ships, uh, which uh, is now. Uh, equivalent or greater to, to our own. That doesn't mean with the same kind of quality and capability that our ships have, but as uh, I think Joseph Stalin said, quantity has a quality all of, all of its own. Um, what we need to be doing is um, uh, without uh, allowing our existing uh, exquisite platforms, these, these great ships and, and aircraft and, and uh, so forth, submarines, uh, without allowing those to atrophy we need to be shifting to a greater array of uh, what I would call asymmetric uh, sort of, uh, you know, a third standoff type of, um, of, of, um, uh, uh, of capabilities, th things that uh, would take advantage of the fact, for example, that we got out of the, the, uh, the, the Reagan-Gorbachev treaty on land-based uh, missiles. You know, China has thousands of land-based missiles that are pointed at our bases and our aircraft and, and our, or rather our ships uh, across the Western Pacific. We, we need to be um, using similar types of capabilities that, that inject uh, friction uh, into, um, uh, into China's own war plans, whether it's war plans in the South China Sea or, uh, or in the Senkaku Islands or most importantly in Taiwan. With that in mind, um, you know, the opportunities that getting out of the INF affords us. How closely when you're in the White House did you follow what the commandant of the Marine Corps, General Berger, was talking about with his force design and, and sort of putting small teams of Marines armed with INF non-compliant missiles in the first island chain essentially to complicate the CCP and the PLA Navy's OODA loop every day? Yeah, you know, I, I mean, I, I think that he's been uh, he, he's been at the vanguard of uh, actually taking to heart and uh, trying to operationalize uh, the guidance that came out in the 2018 National Defense Strategy and the 2017 uh, Indo-Pacific Strategic Framework and the 2017 um, uh, National Security Strategy. So that's what when we're talking about a third offset. Um, uh, that's that's the kind of capabilities that we're talking about, and of course he's taken a lot of guff for that. There have been, you know, understandably a lot of a lot of uh, salty veterans in, in the Marine Corps and, and elsewhere who understand like that, us, that, sal super salty old Marines. You know. Yeah, we, we got nice salty starched uniforms, and but but you know we we were fighting. We, we were fighting you and I in, um, in, in what we used to call a century ago small wars, right? These were, these were counterinsurgency operations primarily, you know, land wars uh, that did not require, you know, a massive amphibious capability to, to break and enter. Uh, we, we weren't using tanks at all. We were barely using artillery, um, occasional call for fire from, from aircraft. Um, you know, Marines from, from the generation older than us who fought uh, some pretty bitter battles in, 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 uh, in Vietnam uh, and elsewhere um, re recall what it, <laughs> what it would mean not to have those kinds of capabilities. So, so it's a very difficult kind of a, of, of a thing to when you've got to make choices. And that's what strategy is. It's, it's making a choice about what, where you're going to accept risk uh, and, and where you're going to embrace opportunity by shifting your resources. Um, uh, I, I think General Berger's done a, a commendable job of, uh, uh, of, of uh, you know, try, trying to make the shift that takes into account uh, the incredible uh, capabilities of, uh, of our top adversary.
And just to let you guys know, we've actually just secured General Berger for an interview for the podcast in uh, May. So oh, we'll have these perfect. guys back on as guest hosts so they can stick it to their commanding officer. <laughs> so, hey, one That's last right. question, Matt. One last question because we're coming up close to time is um, why, why would the Chinese want to force a crisis or confrontation? Things have been going their way pretty much the last 20, 10, 20 years. They haven't had to risk a military confrontation. Why don't they just wait, keep their economy growing, keep building their military and let the West collapse from its own internal contradictions as Marxist Leninist theory would predict. And then just, you know, yeah. come in and scoop up all the pieces after, you know, we've had a number of recessions and we cut spending and we borrow too much and, and so on. Yeah, no, I, I think it'd be smarter strategy on their part to do that. Uh, but I, that's not, that's not the, the message that, that I'm getting from, um, from the current leadership and, and, uh, part of its hubris, part of it is, um, is, uh, you know, grand ambition. Part of it is also, I think, driven by a sense of what I call desperate opportunism, because I think that in their heart of hearts, the top leaders of China understand that there are grave uh, weaknesses in their system, and that over time, those weaknesses are going to express themselves uh, um, with, with greater and greater urgency. Uh, particularly on the economic front. And so there's a bit of a, a feeling right now, I think, where they say, look, we've got this one moment of opportunity uh, to try to, to make a land grab, uh, you know, gr try to extend our influence um, by all means available, including military, um, in, in, in order to um, uh, support a narrative that that um, uh, you know uh, sustains the, the 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 glory, however manufactured, of the Chinese Communist Party, and uh, and so I, I think that that's part of the danger right now. I think that I think that there's a chance that they're going to uh, bite off a lot more than they can chew because they're they're afraid that they're they're not going to have teeth to do any biting later on. So we can uh, end the show as we should end all great shows with a reference to Thucydides. So the Chinese actually feel they're the declining power, is your point, interestingly. They don't think they're really the rising power of Athens. They're more like the Spartans. They're worried they're losing their grasp, and that might cause them to reach out, strike out irrationally almost. Um, actually, no, yeah, you're I think it's rational. It actually would be rational. They're trying to lock I, in I their gains before they decline. They, they want to lock in their gains at a moment when, when they've created the perception of a, a linear continued rise when I think in their heart of hearts they know that that linear uh, trajectory is a is a fantasy uh, and and uh, the only way to sustain it is through um, heroic measures <laughs> that includes some pretty risky type, types of measures that are going to bring them um, uh, in direct uh, conflict with the interests of all of their neighbors and the United States of America. So Matt we want to uh, we want to wrap up but before we go we just want to ask you quickly what um Tell us what you're going to be doing at Hoover going forward. Are you going to be writing a book? Is there, are there some projects? What is it that we should be expecting to waiting to see from you? Yeah. You know, some, some of the things that I'm uh, digging into and doing some writing on and, and some speaking on have to do with um, uh, China's own strategy. We talk a lot about what we should do, but I think we've paid insufficient attention to what China's strategy uh, really is in their own words um, uh, part, that's part of it, but also looking at the, the technological competition, semiconductors, um, 
China's plans and grand ambitions for a digital currency, uh, which, which would pose uh, very significant problems for U.S. dollar hegemony over time if we're not careful in how we uh, 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 sort of how, how we manage uh, China's ambitions in that department. Um, I'm also looking, you know, closer to home at the role that the media and social media play uh, in, um, you know, wh wh where they're uh, doing damage or falling short of, of our ideals and of the ideals of uh, you know, um, the fourth estate, you know, a critical component of, of what makes our democracy work. Um, I, I'm going to be doing some, some digging into uh, the types of things that we need to do uh, to inject a little bit of accountability again into um, uh, press coverage uh, and, and also figuring out some of the things that are going that, to, that, frankly, there are going to have to be some changes to the way that uh, social media operates in our society. Uh, right now we're flying in a cloud, in a cloud blank, a, a cloud bank towards a, a mountaintop. And, and it, you know, level steady flights gonna, gonna spell disaster. We actually need to pull back on the stick or turn left or right or, 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 do, or turn around. Um, but those are some areas that I'm, uh, uh, I'm doing some research into. Well, that's usually how we feel on this podcast. We're flying in a cloud bank into a mountaintop, but <laughs> that's it's right. a perfect time to, to, to end. Uh, obviously, a lot of work that you'll be doing that we'll all be watching uh, that will be coming out from Hoover. Uh, fantastic to have you. Uh, we're, we're, first of all, we're thrilled you're at Hoover, but fantastic to have you on the show to talk about these things. Definitely, we'll, we'll want to have you back. And, and as always, Representative Mike Gallagher, uh, a true pleasure. This time, sitting in the in the co-host seat, flying us into that mountain. Much easier just to sit here and lob bombs that Tom Tugan had and uh, ask my good friend Matt Pottinger uh, questions. Which, by the way, Matt, I'll say one last nice thing about you: the speeches you did in Mandarin from the White House were superb, uh, and I think uh, Reagan-esque um, uh, uh, examples of of ideological warfare that future generations will learn from. Well, it, it, it uh, allowed me to knock some of the, the deep uh, layers of rust that had accumulated on my Chinese language ability, if nothing else. And uh, I, I think we should invite Tom Tugendat back on uh, so the three of us can, uh, uh, can, can figure out what, uh, you know, what the next steps are going to be in this whole, in this whole competition. Uh, I think we, we will absolutely do that. Um, so once again, Matt Pottinger. Uh, of the Hoover Institution. Thank you. Mike Gallagher, representative from Wisconsin. Thank you. For my co-host, John Yu, I'm Misha Oslin. Thank you for joining in to the Pacific Century. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work and to hear more of our podcasts or see our video content, please visit hoover.org.